So let's turn in our Bibles, if you have one, hopefully you do, to Isaiah. We are back in the book of Isaiah. We're going through that book. Uh, we're calling our series, The Gospel According to Isaiah. Um, no other major Old Testament prophet is quoted more. And the reason why we're calling it quoted more in the New Testament, why we're calling it that, is because of Isaiah's deep and rich revelation. The unveiling of the gospel in Isaiah is so rich and so clear. And his name is Jesus the Christ. In fact, the, Lord, the name Isaiah means the Lord is salvation. Really, just summarizing this great Old Testament book. Um, Last time when we got together on this before the Christmas season, we were in chapter 39, if you remember. Chapter 39 actually ended the first major section, chapters 1 through 39, and we ended, and we don't have a lot to, we have a lot to cover uh, to kind of catch you up, but I don't want to spend that much time on that. Let me, let me just say this, chapters 1 through 39 is, is we, we've seen Isaiah over and over again warning God's people of breaking their covenant promises and, and breaking, uh, uh, sinning against the covenant that they've made, sins of, of pride, sins of fear of man, abusive leadership. They were pressing uh, the poor and the fatherless. They were failing to trust God, remember? They were making these ungodly alliances with these foreign nations. And God has given, God, God has given his people many chances to repent, to turn, to, to, to stop their idolatry, and to trust him. But we've seen over and over again, God's people became more and more stubborn. And therefore, therefore, God sent his heavy hand of chastisement and discipline upon his people. God actually sent the Assyrian nation, uh, the army in which they were, the army that they were afraid of. He sent them in to actually teach both Israel and Judah to trust him. We learned that 721 B.C., Israel, the northern kingdom, was decimated by the Assyrian army. And then by the plan and purposes of God and the sovereignty of God, they continued moving forward. And they were at the door of the city of Jerusalem, the southern kingdom's capital. It's now 701 B.C. as we ended chapter 39. Around 701 B.C. The northern kingdom was decimated. They were at the door of Jerusalem. And God has not only been... We see this so much in Isaiah. God has not only been showing forth and revealing his holiness, his perfection in light of their rebellion, but he has over and over been revealing to God's people his grace, his mercy, and his covenant kindness toward his people. Isaiah teaches us that God is the Holy One of Israel. He is the one high and lifted up, chapter 6. He is sovereign over all the nations and will judge every nation. And although His wrath is fierce, His cleansing work of atonement and salvation is more than enough to rescue and redeem His remnant people. We saw that in chapter 37, how God intervened and spared Jerusalem, how King Ezekiah at the time was seeking the Lord, and God spares Jerusalem. But if you also remember, we ended chapters 38 and 39. At the end is not a chronological order. We talked about that. Isaiah gives us a glimpse all of a sudden into the life of Hezekiah, his, his faith, his, his sickness, his healing. But unfortunately, the chapter ends with Isaiah's, excuse me, Hezekiah's selfishness. Isaiah concludes chapter 39 really pointing to the reality that Hezekiah, King Hezekiah, is not 
the king God's people were waiting for. It is not the Messiah that has been spoken about through chapters 1 through 39. How Isaiah speaks of this king who will come in the lineage of David, David, the promised son, whose kingdom will be established, upheld with justice and righteousness. Chapter 39 ends with this wanting of we want someone else, we need someone else, because the true and the better king is coming and his name is Jesus. We also learn from the end of chapter uh, 39, this first section, that God's people were not going to repent. If you have your Bibles, look at Isaiah 39. God's people were not going to repent. Actually, God's people are getting ready to go into exile. Verse 6 of chapter 39. Behold, the days are coming when all that is in your house and that which your fathers have stored up till this day, he's talking to Hezekiah, shall be carried to Babylon. Nothing shall be left, says the Lord. Okay? So let me tell you what's going on here. It's really important you get this. Chapter 39, God is speaking through Isaiah to his people in the 8th century B.C. When you turn the page, you get to chapter 40 through 55, Isaiah is speaking to God's people in the 6th century B.C., okay? Chapters 1 through 39, uh, excuse me, chapter 39, verse 6, Isaiah announces there's going to be peace. Verse 8, there's going to be peace in your day, but your, your people are going to be carried into exile, into Babylon. And remember, he said, well, that's cool. I don't care as long as I'm okay. That's how it ended. We saw hints of this exile in chapter 14, and we know from history that the Mesopotamian world, that 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 power that began in that area with the Assyrian nation did culminate in the Babylonian uh, 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 dynasty under Nebuchadnezzar. Now, I have to go here. Isaiah is prophesying in the 8th century, 1 through 39. Chapter 40, he's prophesying in the 6th century. Commentators, scholars will say that it wasn't Isaiah anymore. That the Isaiah, the the son of Amos, chapter 1, verse 1, stopped writing in chapter 39. And some other Isaiah, not really named Isaiah, we don't know who he is. But someone else was writing while the people were in exile 150 years later. And then someone else, a third Isaiah, wrote from chapters 56 through 66, the end, that section. So there was three Isaiahs, the original and two under the name Isaiah. And they say things like, you know what, there's, there's a difference of, of theme, there's a little bit of difference of writing styles, how could Isaiah know what, what something's going on 150 years and beyond that? Well, there are three answers to that question at least, because I totally disagree with those scholars. Not every scholar believes that. First of all, the reason there is a difference in writing styles and themes is most likely because he's writing to a, to a different audience. And you know what? When I write a love letter to my wife, it better not sound like a manual for changing your oil. It better not. Like, there's a difference. If I'm writing a manual, which I never would because I have no idea how to do that, and I leave my wife a letter, it's going to be different. Even though there are some themes that are the same throughout the whole book, some of them are different probably because of the writing, the different audience. So that's one reason that there are some differences. And it's, number two, the reason Isaiah knows about the people's exile and speaks to a people 150 years later after he's dead and gone is because, get this, God told him. I know that's unbelievable. 
It's called revelation. It's called inspiration. John did the same thing in Revelation, right, in the book of Revelation. I believe that God is, just so you know, the whole pastoral team here believes God is smart enough to write a book, lead, guide, and speak to his prophet about the future. Okay? Number three, why I believe Isaiah wrote all of Isaiah, the son of Amos, is because the Bible says so. The New Testament over and over and over again cites many of these prophecies in Isaiah and attributes to attributes it to Isaiah, the son of Amos. John chapter 12, attributed to Isaiah. Romans chapter 10, Paul cites Isaiah 65, and he says, From Isaiah who boldly said... The Dead Sea Scrolls were found that I think Perry's here today. Perry saw the Dead Sea Scrolls. It was in Jerusalem. Where was the Dead Sea Scrolls? Okay. And, and Isaiah has a scroll all the way open. And it doesn't stop at 39 and say there's someone brand new. It just keeps scrolling. Right? So chapters and verses came later from Scripture. Okay? Isaiah wrote Isaiah, the son of Amos. God can... God's word says so, and therefore, I believe it. So Isaiah the prophet, that's important, and I'll show you why. So here's our scripture lesson. We're in Isaiah 40 uh, together, so turn there with me. I know that's a long intro, but the hospitality team will be around getting your lunch menu in a moment. Okay, so listen, this is what we're going to do. We're going to look at Isaiah 40, and we're going to see it under three headings, okay? Kind of long headings. It's right, I'll hit each one of them. The glory of God who comforts and forgives sinners... We'll see that in verses 1 through 11. The incomparable greatness and sovereignty of God who is above the nations, verses 11 through 26. And then we'll wrap up, and when we get to point three, we're going to be wrapping it up and going into communion. The everlasting God who strengthens the faint and the weary. That's our three points. Number one, the glory of God who comforts and forgives sinners. Hear the word of the Lord. Isaiah chapter 40. Comfort. Comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare or hardship is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up and every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level and the rough places a plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. A voice says, cry. And I said, what shall I cry? All flesh is grass and all its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades when the breath of the Lord blows on it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Go on up to high mountain, O Zion. Herald of good news, lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem. Herald of good news, lift it up. Fear not, says the cities of Judah. Behold your God. Behold, the Lord God comes with might and his arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. May God add a blessing to the reading of his word this morning. Now remember, Isaiah is writing this before the exile. 
knowing that not, not only will there be a destruction in the city of Jerusalem, will be destroyed, but that God's people are going to be carried off, removed from the promised land, and they were going to be brought into exile, into slavery in Babylon. So in some sense, there's two audiences. One, Isaiah's original audience in the 8th century, not in Babylon yet, still living in Jerusalem, but hearing the word of the Lord as the prophet is proclaiming his message. But then there's God's people in exile, 150 years later, reading this message and hopefully realizing that God has foreseen their circumstances and that he cared enough about his people to give them not only advanced notice, but a message, listen, a message of renewed hope. Wanting to speak a word of comfort to them, for them to, to help them, to guide them, and to bring them to the place of trusting him. Even in the midst of discipline, in the midst of this, uh, brokenness, God's covenant commitment to them is not exhausted simply because he is chastising his people. God chooses to comfort and redeem his people even from the consequences and rebellion, uh, the consequence of their rebellions against him. That's the gospel. That's the gospel. That's the new covenant that God rescues sinners. Even while we were yet sinners, Christ died. And this prologue uh, offers hope. God will judge, but God will restore. So let me ask, have you ever been to that place? You ever been to a place you just, you're just quiet and you're just thinking and, you're, and, you're, and you recognize that some of your decisions, some of your foolishness, some of your, your rebellion brought you to a, a bad place? Don't raise your hand, right? And don't try to think of somebody else. Think of the time in your life. Wouldn't you at that moment, how did I get here? Oh, I know how I got here. Wouldn't in that moment you would love to hear, verse 2, God tenderly? <laughs> I love it. God tenderly, like a, a man courting his wife, say, comfort, comfort. Your hardship, your warfare is over. Your sins are completely forgiven. In fact, there's twice enough pardon for your sins. Listen, whatever may lie ahead of us or with the people of Judah, God's ultimate purpose for his people is not destruction, but redemption. Not eternal death, but eternal life. Renewing comfort in the midst of our brokenness. And this repetition, Isaiah, comfort, comfort, he, he adds that, that second word uh, and revealing the, the wealth of the command in, G, in Jewish uh, uh, literature, the fullness, the richness of comforting and comforting that God offers to his people. Notice he says, your God, verse 1, covenant language there. And we could, I think we could be pretty certain that the people in exile... The people that, are, that are, 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 are living now, hearing this message, even 150 years later, reading the scroll of Isaiah, they would feel somewhat defeated, somewhat uh, bitter, maybe, even, even um, bewildered. In fact, it caused them, look at, down at verse 27, it caused them in this exile, in, the, in, this, in this dealing with uh, uh, being sent out of the promised land, it, it, it got them to think wrongly about God, verse 27. And they say it's about God. They're saying this about God. My way is hidden from the Lord. And my right is disregarded by my God. In other words, my just, my just that is due is disregarded. You know, sometimes when we're in the midst of struggling and we're in the midst of hardship and difficulties, sometimes we're in a, a, a state of bewilderment. We, we want to blame God for it. 
And what does God do? Shake his head in derision and walk away? No, he, he, he comes down. He comforts them. He gives them a promise, a, a promise with hope that's not dependent on them. It's dependent on God. Our hope is not in ourselves and our own strength. Our hope is in God. And he promises to display this hope, this glory, he says, to the whole world, verses, uh, world, verses 3 through 5. There's this unknown voice crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. The king is coming. God comes down in the wilderness and the desert of our lives. And his voice is unknown. We don't know who this voice is, but we do know because we have the New Testament, don't we? Who's the voice crying in the wilderness? It's John the Baptist. Declaring the coming of Jesus calls people everywhere in the New Testament, beginning of the New Testament, to repent, to be baptized and repent. Jesus is coming. Make ready for the good news. Make ready means get get yourself heart get your heart prepared for the coming of Christ. Family, are you ready? Is your heart ready to receive the good news of the Christ, the Messiah, the coming King? I hope so. Second, we see God will accomplish his purposes and nothing will stop him. The road is prepared before him so we can travel with ease and with glory. Every obstacle will be removed. Every valley shall be exalted. Every mountain and hill brought low. The crooked made straight. The rough places smooth. I'm not talking literal. We're talking the heart. John the Baptist came preaching a message of repentance. Leveling the mountains by exposing self-righteousness. Leveling the ground, giving hope for the forgiveness of sins. One writer put it this way. He said, Isaiah, he is talking about the disruptive, I love this, the disruptive advance of salvation. He is saying that lifting and lowering, leveling and smoothing are necessary for the kingdom of Christ. He is talking about Depression being relieved, pride being flattened, and he's also implying, listen to this, that if we cling to the status quo and refuse God's upsetting but constructive salvation, we risk no part with Christ, end quote. Shake it up. Are you ready? Are you prepared? And when he comes, when the preparations have made, then the glory of the Lord will be revealed will be revealed in his appearance. He'll be seen, the scripture says, by all flesh. The glory of the Lord will come. Now, in Jerusalem, you remember, the Shekinah glory came and dwelt, we looked at this, we were in Hebrews, that the Shekinah glory, the presence of God dwelt in the innermost sanctuary, in the Holy of Holies. The Shekinah glory came down. That's the presence of God with his people in Jerusalem. Well, Jerusalem is no more. Jerusalem has been destroyed this time. By this time, there is no glory in Jerusalem. But Isaiah promises a full reversal. God's glory will again appear among men. This time, however, the glory of God that will display itself will be in his salvation. It'll be, it'll be the fullness of his majesty. The glory, power, and grace made visible in the person and the work of Jesus the Christ. Who is the Lord in all his glory. The fullness of God is in his personal presence to us. The glory of God is the manifestation 
of God's absolute reality, his limitless worth, his majesty, purity, and infinite value that he has in himself. His glory is the fiery radiancy of his beauty, of his very nature. And the display of the glory of God is nowhere greater seen than in Jesus Christ. John 1, we read part of that. And the word became flesh and dwelt, tabernacled among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory as the only son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And then we see Jesus going to the cross. And on the cross, we see all the attributes of God radiantly displayed. His love, his mercy, his wisdom, his power, his truth, his justice, his wrath, and his patience for sinners. The Bible says that Jesus himself is the ultimate revelation and the ultimate display of the glory of God. God becoming visible, bringing his presence down to us, displaying his beauty on the, in the person and work of Christ. And it is God the Holy Spirit, we are told in 2 Corinthians. I love this verse. It is God the Holy Spirit that awakens us to the beauty and incalculable worth of Christ in the gospel. 2 Corinthians 4, the God small g of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers. They need the Holy Spirit to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory, the infinite worth and value of Christ, who's the image of God. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge, light of the knowledge of the glory of God. Where? In the face of Jesus Christ. The glory, the coming of Christ. Verses 6 through 8 speaks about the certainty of it. God has decreed that it will happen, not only because of the mouth of the Lord is spoken, verse 5, but look at verse 8. For the, but the word of the Lord stand forever. I think that we need to be reminded from time to time that all humanity is like grass. And all the glory of this world, like flowers of the field, they will all wither. Think about it. What glory has lasted for centuries upon centuries? All, not some, all human splendor, majesty, intelligence, strength withers and dies at some point. As the breath of the Lord blows on it. And by contrast, the glory of the word of the Lord will never fade. God's word will never change. Peter, the apostle, rightly brings out the true meaning of this verse. He takes this verse in Isaiah and he speaks about it and he talks about being born again by imperishable seed. He speaks about the gospel. He takes this verse in 1 Peter chapter 1. He says this in verse 24. All flesh is like grass and all its glory like the flowers of grass. The grass withers, the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And, Peter says, this word is good news. It's the gospel that was preached to you. Paul makes, uh, excuse me, Peter makes this connection showing the enduring word that Isaiah is talking about here is really the word of the gospel that's being preached for your salvation for those who believe. That's comforting word for us today, family. When there is so much changing in our world day by day. Man. There's so many things to consider. There are many, there's so many false and misleading, exaggerating information out there. It, it sickens me. It's exhausting trying to get to the truth. 
But the word of God, the good news of the gospel, the promise of God remains forever. You need to hear that this morning. I need to hear that this morning. And in verses 9 through 11, Isaiah says to God's people, it is your job, it is your responsibility to go tell it on a mountain. Right? Announce the good news. Be heralders of what God is doing in salvation through Jesus Christ our Lord. Inviting others, verse 9, to behold our God. We sang that earlier. Behold our God. Look, pay attention, see. Behold the greatness of his character. He comes with might, speaking of his return, with a reward. The sovereign Lord is coming to exercise his strong rule, verses 9 through 11. He's bringing his reward, recompense. It's synonymous with his people. He brings the fruit of his victory, which we will share with his own remnant. The immediate reverence, uh, excuse me, reference probably is to Babylon, but I'm sure Isaiah has in mind the wondrous deliverance of God's people to the bondage of sin. God is deserving of his reward in his great victory against the enemy, against sin, against death, against uh, the penalties of death and the consequences of our sins. We see this mighty ruler in verses uh, uh, 9 and 10. But look at verse 11. This mighty ruler, all of a sudden, verse 11, it says, he's a shepherd. He's a ruler, but a shepherd. He tends his sheep. He, he feeds his sheep. Tends means to feed. He, he directs his sheep as the, as the grass is being stripped away bare. The sheep are then moved to a new pasture so they can eat. He gathers his lambs. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. Charles Spurgeon said this, To carry is kindness, but to carry in the bosom is loving kindness. The shoulders are for power and the back for force, but the bosom is the seat of love, end quote. Jesus Christ in ministry on the earth identified himself as what? The good shepherd. The good shepherd who lays down his life for his sheep. Here comes Jesus, the king, the ruler, who brings his reward to him and even the youngest and the weakest of his sheep are not despised. They are, they are cared for. They are loved. They are protected. They are fed as he gathers them and cradles them in his arms. In his bosom, his children, his children close to his heart. They're in a safe and tender place. His hand, excuse me, his arm, verse 10, against the enemy now becomes a hand that is caring for his children. Do you know that God cares? Loves, provides tenderness and safety in his arms. Jesus is the good shepherd, John tells us, who cares and sacrifices for the flock. But in Hebrews chapter 13, it says Jesus is the great shepherd. Why? His blood was shed. The blood of the eternal covenant brings us peace with God. Peace because our enemy has been triumphed over. And let me just say this as we move to our second point. In Isaiah 1 through 39, one of the main themes was the king. We talked about that, the king. In chapters 40 through 55, one of the main subjects is servant of the Lord. You have this ruler king who's now the servant of the Lord. You have that one who will reign and rule divine power and one who will also care and pardon and renew God's people called the servant of the Lord. The reward that we will receive 
His reward that he will give to us is on the basis of the servant of the Lord. We'll see that when we get to Isaiah 52 and 53, that famous passage of the crucifixion, resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. His name is Jesus. He's the ruler. He's the shepherd. He's the ruler. He's the king. He comes to forgive. He comes to reveal glory. He comes to lovingly care for his people. And he comes to speak tenderly to his people. So here's the question. That's God's heart. That's God's desire. That's, that's where, where God speaks to his children tenderly, comforting them. The question now remains, can he do it? Can he do it? Can he do all that he says he can do? That's where the incomparable greatness and sovereignty of God, who is above the nation, comes in. God wants to deliver his people. God will be consistent with his people. God will be loving and, and forgiving his people. But the question is, can he do it? It's one thing to, 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 to say one thing. It's another thing to act a certain way. God had stepped in and dramatically delivered the people of Israel. Remember, in chapter 37, killed, I don't know, 140,000 people in one shot. And now these people are in exile, remembering maybe what happened 150 years ago, or reading about it, and they're wondering, is God strong enough? Is he bigger and better than all the other gods? Is he bigger and better than all the other nations? Well, verses 12 through 26 answer that question. Hear the word of the Lord. Who has measured the waters? Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and marked off the heavens with a span, enclosed the dust of the earth in a measure and weighed the mountains in scales and the hills in a balance? Who has measured the spirit of the Lord? Who, what man shows him his counsel? Whom did he consult? And who made him understand? Who taught him the path of justice and taught him knowledge and showed him the way of understanding? Behold, verse 15, the nations are like a drop from a bucket and are counted as the dust on the scales. Behold, he takes the coastlands like fine dust. Lebanon would not suffice for fuel, nor are its beasts enough for burnt offerings. All the nations are as nothing before him. They are accounted by him as less than nothing and emptiness. To whom, then, will you liken God? Or what likeness compares with him? An idol? A craftsman cast it? And a goldsmith overlays it with gold and cast for its silver chains? He who is too impoverished for an offering chooses wood that won't rot? He seeks out a skillful craftsman to set up an idol that will not move? Do you not know? Do you not hear? Has it not been told to you from the beginning? You guys know this. Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is he who sits above the circle of the earth, and its inhabitants are grasshoppers. He stretches out the heavens like a curtain, spreads them like a tent to dwell in, who brings princes to nothing, makes the rulers of the earth as emptiness. Scarcely are they planted, scarcely sown, scarcely are the stem taken root in the earth. When he blows on them, they'll wither. And the tempest carries them off like stubble. To whom then, he says, verse 25, will you compare me that I should be like him, says the Holy One. Lift up your eyes on high and see who created these. Who brought out their host by number, calling them all by name, by the greatness of his might. And because he is strong in power, no one is missing. 
May God add a blessing to the reading of his word. And we see Isaiah through these series of, of probing questions with who and whom. It reminds me of Job, does it not? Like when God finally steps in, speaks to Job and his stupid friends, right? And, and, and speaks a word concerning his greatness and his sovereignty over the world. And here, like, like Job, it's meant for us to wake up, to see God, who he is, to, to humble us, and at the same time, developing within us a deeper faith, an ability to trust him that he will do as he says he will do, that we could rest on him. Verse 12, behold the God of creation. Try and measure with your measurer the Atlantic Ocean. See how far you get. All right. See how far you get. What type of measuring cup do you need to calculate the matter of water? The hollow hand is sufficient for God. That's an instrument for him. Go and try and tape your measure, tape measure, and measure the heavens. No problem for God. Science has said, shown us that there's a vastness of cosmos, billions of stars, millions of galaxies. We're not even sure. God knows. He names each one. This language, by the way, is what's called anthropomorphism. It's a way in which God speaks to us in, uh, in human language so we could try to at least comprehend who he is, how dominant he is. I mean, he calculates the dust. Ladies, would you like that? He calculates the dust of the earth in a measure. He knows how much dust. He knows how much weight the mountains weigh and the hills. Young... Dr. Young writes this, the contemplation of these things should lead the mind directly to the consideration of the greatness and grandeur of the everlasting God who will come in his glory to visit his people. Family, behold the God of creation. Verse 13 and 14, behold the God of wisdom. Where does God go to figure things out? Like, (laughs) we are told, listen, don't do it on your own. Right? We live in community here. Don't do it on you. have the word of God, but you have counsel too. Seek godly counsel, but that's not the case with God. Aaron Lutzer, he was a pastor, he said this. This is funny. Has it ever occurred to you that nothing ever occurred to God? God cannot learn anything. God cannot be taught anything. God cannot have counsel for anything. No instruction, no teacher. No one will show the way of understanding to God. The Babylonian false gods, they had these councils the gods would get together. Paul writes this in Romans, the end of Romans, in the glorious book of Romans. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of God? Who has been his counselor? Question mark. Who has given gift to him that he might be repaid for from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever and ever. Amen. And what's interesting here, if you look at verse 14, the path of justice and the way of understanding is, not, is a concept that means that, that all of earth, all, all of the galaxies, everything that God has, not just earth, is, is, is under his knowledge, under his understanding. No one, no one tells him anything. But there's also a hint here of salvation. The past of justice, knowledge, 
just, justice knowledge, the way of understanding. So it's about redemption as well, that, that God's plan for redeeming, for saving, for rescuing his people was not something someone gave them and said, hey, I think this is a good idea. I've seen what happened in the garden. Not good, but I got a plan for you. Oh, I like that plan. That's not how it happened. Creation, wisdom, verse 15 through 17. Create, uh, God's greatness over the nations. Drop in a bucket, he says. All of Lebanon. Get all the trees in Lebanon. Get all the beasts of the field in Lebanon. For the greatest glory that any nation could possibly reveal is a drop in a bucket. Drop, boop. Compared to the greatness and glory and grandeur and majesty of our God. And if man were to take all the wood in all of Lebanon and got every single cattle that was there, Beast uh, and made sacrifices, it still would not be enough to satisfy God. Why? Listen, man's best efforts cannot satisfy the honor and the glory of God. There's not enough wood on the earth, there's not enough animals to sacrifice on the altar to please God or to atone for sin. It is all futile. Why? Forgiveness comes by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, by the sufficient sacrifice that he provided in the perfect, obedient son, a sacrifice of infinite worth. All the nations are nothing. All the nations are nothing. God's greatness, creation, wisdom over the nations, over idols. Look at verse 18. Isaiah knows... First of all, the word idol comes up a lot in, in Isaiah. Why? Because Isaiah knows that we are a people who create idols. That we have this part of us, this sinful nature part of us, that wants to control God. Like, I, I want to control my environments. I want to control God. I, I, wanna, I want to, to do what I want to do. Controlling him. And what we do then, we, we bring him down to, to our own categories. But the Bible says this transcendent God is incomparable. No one, no nothing has greater glory. It's, it's, it's ridiculous to practice idolatry. Idols we run to. So ask yourself again, what are you hoping in? What are you trusting in? What are you looking for for your self-satisfaction, your wholeness, your comfort, your significance? Is it God or is it an idol? Is it God or an idol? If it's an idol, it won't satisfy. If it's an idol, it'll never forgive you. If it's an idol, it'll never cover your shame. If it's an idol, it will never give you what your heart is longing for. As Blas Pascal once wrote, what else does this craving and this helplessness proclaim that there was once in man a true happiness of which all that now remains is empty, an empty print and a trace Man tries to, in vain, to fill with everything around him, seeking in things that are not there, the help he cannot find in those that are, though none can help. And he writes this, Since the infinite abyss can be filled only with the infinite and immutable object, in other words, by God himself, end quote. There's nothing in the world that this, this world can compare to our God. 
Craftsmen can come and they can make gods. Remember, God is not just the wood. The God of idols, the small g, idols are not just carved with wood. Idols can be a physical object. Idols can be property. Idols can be a person, an activity, a drug, a role, an institute, a hope, an image, an idea, a hero. Anything that we place in front and on top of our lives, controlling our lives, resting in, trusting in, can be an idol. But God is supreme, and he wants us to trust him alone, to find our satisfaction in him, our justification in him, our worth, our value, our meaning, our purpose in him. Lastly, we see in verses 21 through 26 is the unmistakable. We started, where we started, we end in verse 20, 21 through 26. And he's driving home, Isaiah's driving home this rhetorical question about, about the, the glory and the wisdom and the greatness and the supremacy of our God. Let me move that over if I can. You have to understand, he says, how God created the universe. He, he, he sits upon his creation. Look what it says. The, he, the circle of the earth. Notice it doesn't say flat earth. He says the circle. He sits above his creation. He created it and he stretched it out. Look what it says. Heaven's like a curtain. Amazing. And, and Isaiah is saying what we, we've, we have said here before. You look at the world, you look at creation, you look at the glory of the beauty and the majesty of creation, how evident it is that a creator designed it. How can you fail to understand that there must be a glorious design behind a, a glorious, a, excuse me, a glorious designer behind a glorious design? And that's what he's talking about. And look at verse with me, verse 23 and 24. Let me see, I have that up there? Yeah, I love this because look what it says. Verse 23, who brings princes to nothing and makes the rulers of the earth as emptiness. What he's saying is those political power people who, who think they're gods, the law, the judges who think they're gods, I will bring them to nothing. Not only the princes, not only the judges, uh, but I'll bring the whole world down. God wants to set it right. All God needs is to blow on them, verse 24. And in verse 25, it is the mouth of the Lord speaks. The only time we hear the mouth of the Lord. To whom then will you compare me that I should be like him, says the Holy One. God speaks. God speaks. Who is, who is it like me? Who is it like me? No one. Lift up your eyes, he says, verse 26. Who created us? I bring their host by number, calling them all by name, by the greatness of his might, and because he has strong power, no one is missing. The gods in that day would name their, their small little gods, and God says, I know them all by name. I know them all by by name. The gap between God and all creation is infinite. Family, just feel that for a moment as we move to our third point into communion. That God's superiority to the nation is shown in his sovereign creative power. Superiority over all the idols. Superiority over all. All the earth, the rulers, his transcendence, his eternality. While everything is temporary, he is eternal. That's our God. That's our God. The incomparable greatness and sovereignty of God who is above all the nations. The everlasting God who strengthens the faint and weary. Two more minutes, we'll go to communion. So bear with me. Struggles, trials, difficulties in our life. 
weigh heavy on the heart, don't they? And we can sometimes doubt God's power, God's presence, God's love. That's what verse 27 is about. O Jacob, speak, O Israel. My way is hidden from the Lord. What I'm going through, he doesn't know, he doesn't see. And my right, my justification is disregarded by my God. John Knox, who's a Scottish reformer, said, By what means Satan first drew mankind from the obedience of God? The scripture does tell us. By pouring into our hearts that poison that God did not love them. God, how can you do this? Do you love me? Have you forgotten me? How can you allow this to happen? We start questioning his nature. We start questioning his goodness. But notice these questions, these doubts are coming from faith. The covenant language is there. He talks about Lord, my God. And we see Jacob and Israel being mentioned. What, what Isaiah is saying is, remember the days of Jacob wrestling with God? And, and say, bless me, Lord, bless me. And God, he wrestled with God and he prevails. And God says to Jacob, listen, you wrestled with me and you prevailed. I'll change your name from Jacob to Israel. And while you, while in exile, you are wrestling with what's going on, I will bless you. Have you not known, verse 28, have you not heard? The Lord is an everlasting God, the God of creator, the ends of the earth. He is not faint. He, is not, uh, he doesn't grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. Open your eyes, people, that they may see the God whom has already revealed himself. He's, he's eternal. He's not bound by time and space. He's where you are always. He's the Lord. He's the covenant-making God. He's the covenant-keeping God, creator of the earth. He doesn't tire He's omnipotent. He's unfathomable because he is omniscient. He knows all things. Verse 29 through 31 to close. He gives power, listen, to the faint. And to him who has no might, he increases strength. Even youth shall faint and be weary and young men shall fall exhausted. But, verse 31, they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not be faint. God not only possesses these attributes and qualities, he shares his strength with those who need it. Whether we buckle under life's pressure or we are weak inside, he provides strength. He provides, he provides sturdy, stable power. Even young ones. Men of young. Youths shall not faint or be weary. Yet those who continually rest on him, trust him, they'll have renewed strength. Now the word wait here in our text, it doesn't mean just wait, sitting around, doing nothing. The word wait means to look to the Lord, to hope. There's a dependency upon waiting upon the Lord, looking to the Lord, waiting on the Lord, meditating on his character and his promises. The word renew means to exchange. Old clothes, new clothes. That you're exchanging your weakness for his power. His grace, Paul said, is sufficient for my power is made perfect in weakness. When I'm weak, then I am strong. Our inadequate strength exchanged as we wait and we're renewed for his abundant strength. The conclusion here in Isaiah 40 of this remarkable reflection on the glory of God who comforts and forgives sinners, the incomparable greatness and sovereignty of God who is above the nations, and the everlasting God is to renew his weak, weary people. Are you weak? Are you weary today?
Band, come on up. And let me finish with saying this. Family, sometimes we look in the wrong places for strength. Sometimes we look in the wrong places for our hope. Sometimes we look in the wrong places for our comfort rather than the promised glory of God in the gospel of Jesus Christ. What we need is a greater and more clearer vision of God. What we need is a greater and more vision and affection for the passion of his glory. And just how faith comes by hearing, faith continues by hearing it again and again. That's what this table is all about. They represent the broken body of Jesus, the blood that was shed. And now we're asking the Holy Spirit to use this communion table, to use this communion service to increase our faith, to strengthen our faith, to confirm our faith. Using the Son as an illustration, Calvin said this, that Christ is present influentially. The Son remains in heaven, yet its warmth, light are present on the earth. So the radiance of the Spirit conveys to us the communion of Christ. The broken bread, his body, the juice, his cup. It's not only a time of remembering and memorializing the service. In a very real sense, Jesus is present through the power and presence of the Spirit inviting us to come. If you're a Christian, you're a follower of Christ, you're welcome to the table. It's not a King's Chapel table. It's a Christian table. It is for those who have trusted in Christ, repented of their sins, you may come and grab the elements and partake of communion together. If you're not a follower of Christ, you have not made that commitment. We're glad you're here. We love you. We love to talk to you about Jesus, but this is a family meal. So just let the elements uh, pass. So don't come up to get any, and we'd love to talk to you. We're glad you're here, and we look forward to spending time with you. And the band's going to play, and we're going to spend time repenting and, and confessing and singing Whatever the Lord lays on your heart. And when you're ready, you come up on the outer aisles, grab the communion uh, elements, and then go sit down. And I'll come up, and I will uh, lead us through taking of the bread and the cup together. So let me ask you, do you need God's comfort today? Do you need the word and the tender comfort of God to say your sins are forgiven? Whatever you're going through, the struggle that you're in, whatever shame you may be holding on to, receive the comfort, the tender comfort and the message of hope and forgiveness. Or maybe you're so worried and caught up in the things of this world and that you're fearful and afraid and you need to hear that God is sovereign. He created the universe. He will oversee all things and you can trust him. I don't know where you're at this morning. I pray the Holy Spirit will lead you. In confession and repentance and then we'll celebrate the Lord's Supper together. Father, it is so hard for me to, to even begin to understand this passage. we pray by your spirit, we will see the coming of the Lord, the Lord Jesus Christ. We will see his beauty in the cross. We will see his perfect life, his death and his resurrection, the glory of you in and through that as we partake of communion. So Lord, we pray, Holy Spirit, come, um, speak to our hearts, draw us into uh, a greater revelation of Jesus and his glory. Help us, Lord, to just Put aside the things that distract us, maybe the fears that have been controlling us. And Lord, help us to receive the comfort knowing that our sins are forgiven and that you redeem love and care for your people. Yes, even at times when we know we've gone someplace and done some things we shouldn't do, Lord, you still woo us, you still call us, you still comfort us, you still tenderly take us with your loving arms in your bosom and walk with us and lead us and guide us. Help us, Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you.